We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Mad Matt Taylor is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. School is out for summer. Hey, Dad, can I borrow the car to get some ice cream? No. Here, Scott Thompson. There you have it. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.07. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. I'm trying to think as I'm sitting here listening to Alice Cooper singing Schools Out. I think I have played this song every single day of my radio career uh, for the last 40 years. Safe to say? On, of course, or thereabouts, the end of June, uh, when the kids call it a day. Congratulations to all the kids out there that uh, are winding up another successful year. Congratulations uh, to all the parents for a successful year. And uh, now they're home. Not what the heck you do. Uh, anyway, feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Congratulations to all. Well done, kids. Well done, parents. Let's have a great and safe summer. And uh, and, and welcome Canada. Uh, welcome in the uh, Canada Day weekend. It's going to be a nice one. It's going to be a warm one. going to be nice. Hopefully, uh, the smog situation works itself out. They're still talking about uh, doing fireworks in the hammer at Bayfront Park, so that's a good sign. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, but, yeah, so far, so good. All systems uh, are go. Feel free to jump into the fun we would love to hear from you there's lots of ways to do that you can send us a note scott thompson at 900 chml.com phone lines are always open you can talk you can text you can leave us your last word join us for hammerhead trivia uh, coming up after the five o'clock news hamilton's favorite game show uh, we would love to hear from you all right another jam-packed show is on the way as i mentioned we're going to talk to uh tourism and events in the city of hamilton find out what is going on what is happening throughout the course of this weekend as i said bayfront park uh looks like the fireworks are still a go and they still have tons of other activities planned there as well which we will talk about coming up uh, a little later on this is a really disturbing story and uh we'll try to certainly tell you the information that we have but uh, as reported in the hamilton spectator uh less than five hours before he was charged with killing his mother uh, Daryl Buckle stood before a judge and explained the reason he spat on police officers with no provocation because a voice in his head told me that if I didn't do it, uh, his mother would be murdered. So, my goodness, uh, just a very, very disturbing story. How do we prevent this from happening? What do we do? How do we react to the red flags when they are waved right in front of our face? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, Ukraine counteroffensive uh, and pushing on, push from NATO members to also bring Ukraine into the NATO fold. We'll talk about that. Um, many are, uh, are are supporting that, including uh, the UK. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also get you an update. Another disturbing story on a Friday. This is just horrific. University of Waterloo this week. You know the story. Uh, stabbing taking place uh, in a class focused on, uh, on gender and such. And a um, uh, person is in custody. Thank goodness that uh, nobody was, you know, dealt with life-threatening in- injuries. But you can imagine even... Uh, just uh, the effect it's going to have on someone and all those in the class that, that witnessed this. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, uh, to better f- foster relationships with Italy, Mayor Andrew Horvath is uh, is uh, hooking up with city partners and revisiting part of uh, Italy. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on with former Mayor uh, Larry Diani, who's been there a couple of times, I think. <laughs> 
and get his take on it. And, of course, what everybody wants to know is how much is it costing us and this is going to be worth it, uh, or is it just a personal vacation? How does it all fit together? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, the federal liberals wanting to wait until they have full buy-in from the other parties before they proceed in the next steps on a public inquiry, which is the biggest pile of crap I have ever heard in my life. Um, You're the government. You are ruling. Uh, you and the NDP, of course. So uh, you come up and you announce a public inquiry, and then the process starts to hold one. You don't try to find buy-in from all of the parties because there won't be any buy-in from all of the parties because, well, all of the other parties were buying into a public inquiry. The federal government had wanted nothing to do with one and humiliated a former governor general by making him proceed over this whole process. So if you're not getting a buy-in on holding a public inquiry, how are you ever going to get a buy-in on the rules and regulations around it? You guys are in charge. Call the damn public inquiry and drop the puck. Okay? Instead, what, are we going to all throw all the sticks in the center of the ice and decide who's on which team? Come on. Come on, enough dilly-dallying, enough kicking, you know, or shooting the puck down the ice. Enough icing here. Let's get the public inquiry called. You're never going to get a full buy-in from the other parties, as they call it. That's how we got to where we were, or where we are. Remember David Johnston resigning, all of that? No public inquiry? No buy-in. So how is there going to be a buy-in for this? You are the government. You call the, the public inquiry and start the process, and it will proceed. Like, honestly, when was the last time you heard of any public inquiry uh, taking so long to even decide whether it's going to happen or not? And again, the liberals are just trying to punt this into the summer and hoping that everybody forgets about it. Like, it's not going to come out the other end. Even better than it was when it went into the summer. I don't know. I'm tired of this. I think everybody is tired of this. And we just want a government that functions, that can just work on a day-to-day basis, Uh, whether it's the transportation minister, whether it's the safety minister, whether it's the prime minister. uh, Nobody seems to know what the other guy or girl is doing. Nobody, the left hand doesn't seem to know what the right hand is doing. And here we are uh, waiting for them to call a public inquiry. And they're waiting for the opposition. Oh, my goodness. Can they spend any more time blaming other people for their own mistakes? It's amazing. Maybe by the end of the summer, you'll hear something about a public inquiry. I'll wake you when that happens. All right, and this is very cool. And uh, Tom Wilson, who, you know, I'm a big fan of, Mohawk author, uh, author, visual artist, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junkhouse, you know the whole deal. Uh, Anyway, uh, the governor general gave him a call and said, hey, you're going to get the Order of Canada. (laughs) How cool is that? So we have a very uh, a very cool conversation with a very modest Tom Wilson uh, a little later on, probably in the 5 o'clock hour, talking about uh, the Order of Canada and what it means to him, especially uh, considering he has found his Mohawk roots and such. So quite a big day uh, for the Wilson family as, uh, as they, uh, well, as he gets on a plane and takes off to Vancouver for a show. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's an All Request Friday edition of Hamilton Today. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? 
You can call Matt, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. We'd love to hear from you. All right, uh, what else we got? Oh, feel free. Uh, uh, no, that's it, never mind. Uh, still to come, uh, we're going to talk uh, in in about, uh, I, I guess, uh, well, before the hour is out, uh, with Jeff Manish and criminal lawyer in regard to uh, just the terrible killing in Hamilton and, again, more concern about laws and letting people out uh, when red flags are being thrown in the air. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, Larry Danny is going to be joining us, former mayor of Hamilton, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour as well. And we'll talk to, uh, about public inquiry and where that is going moving forward. All right, it is the Canada Day long weekend. And for the most part, you know, I mean, as, as we get out and, and we continue beyond the global pandemic of what was, uh, things just keep expanding and expanding. And now, unfortunately, we have issues around forest fires and smoke and such, which has curtailed a couple of uh, cities' celebrations in regard to fireworks uh it looks so so far so good for hamilton let's bring in uh, ryan McHugh, manager of tourism and events in the city of hamilton and with us now ryan thank you for the time hope you're well i'm doing very well thank you so much for having me so ryan let's start with the fireworks what's the what's the situation there where are we yeah so we're monitoring uh, both the uh, the air quality uh, of course as well as the uh, the weather but at the moment uh, we are absolutely looking like a, a go for the fireworks uh, with regards to Air quality, uh, you know, there's not a, a uh, fire ban in effect, so we will uh, continue to monitor. But right now, there's no indication that we would not go forward with the fireworks. And then in terms of uh, weather, um, this is a, a rain or shine event. Uh, in mm. the case of uh, severe w- uh, lightning or wind, uh, we would consider a cancellation. But short of that, uh, the fireworks will go at uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow night at Bayfront Park. All right. So anything we should know for uh, viewing, what have you, let's continue with that event. Yeah, sounds great. So really, you know, as you said, it is exciting, assuming the weather uh, allows and the air quality, um, you know, is also not uh, doesn't deteriorate. Uh, We will have um, expecting about uh, 20,000 people to Bayfront Park. Uh, The event uh, programming starts at one o'clock. Your listeners, we advise them to come hungry because we have 16 different food trucks with a wide array of food. Uh, I know my kids, the ice cream is always the favorite. Oh, we have yeah. a large um, inflatable obstacle courses, uh, lots of different uh, performances from magicians, face painting, um, stilt walkers, you name it. And as well, another thing that uh, was a hit last year and we're redoing this year is the Hamilton Sports Zone. So you'll see activations from your uh, favorite sports teams. So you'll have the Hamilton Tiger Cats, the Forge, uh, as well as the Toronto Rock. Um, and the Hamilton Cardinals. So if you're a sports fan, come on out and there'll be all sorts of activations. And just for your listeners as well, we would, um, there's water available. Uh, There's a water station. We would encourage them to bring a water bottle, which they can fill up. And of course, uh, chairs as well. It's uh, a lot of people in attendance. So if you want a nice, comfortable uh, spot to sit, just bring a little folding lawn chair. Uh, So I'd say that's it in terms of the logistics. And I'd also like to... um, advise your listeners it's a lot of people coming down to bayfront so if you you're, you live in the area i might encourage you to walk take yeah. transit and we do have shuttles running from downtown to bayfront starting at uh, three o'clock so those shuttles will be uh, right across from summer's lane on king street so right in front of jackson square and they'll take you there right up to the event and hsr will be running shuttles uh, as long as is necessary to get the crowds out uh, from bayfront to downtown as well 
And uh, Bayfront, 1 o'clock, the programming starts. So this is a lot more than just fireworks. Uh, absolutely. And that's in the, in the worst case scenario where we do have to cancel fireworks because of um, uh, weather. There's just a ton of family programming happening anyways. And uh, you know, no matter young or old, there's plenty for you to do, even if you're just coming, enjoying the beautiful views of Bayfront Park and having a bite to eat. That alone sounds like a great Saturday. All right. Is that the biggest party in the city this year? It is. It's the biggest, uh, but not the only one. Uh, the The city's hopping, uh, you know, as is usual during the summer months. Um, at Gage Park, we have uh, another event. It's called It's Your Festival. And this one is just uh, a ton of arts and music acts at Gage Park um, on July 1st. So tomorrow, the headliner is the, the Chilliwacks. On July 2nd, Julie Black. And July 3rd, The Box. So there's uh, artists and musicians playing all day. Uh, of course, food entertainment as well. If you're a sports fan, uh, the Hamilton Cardinals play the Guelph Royals at Bernie Arbor Station uh, Stadium on July 2nd. And if you want to go to one of our attractions, um, I know the Royal Botanical Gardens are open tomorrow, the Warplane Heritage Museum. So no shortage of things to do this weekend. And compared to last year, and obviously the year before that, and year before that, are you <laughs> still, is this flower still blooming? Is it still getting bigger and better? So yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, every year, and, uh, you know, of course, we came out of COVID where you couldn't do this. And so last year, it was um, about 20,000 people uh, throughout the day came to Bayfront Park. And if you recall, it was a bit of a rainy one. We just dodged a bullet. There's a storm that happened uh, after the fireworks, but not during. Uh, so this year, you know, hoping the weather uh, cooperates. And uh, in that case, we'd expect even more people. And uh, just something we'd like to grow. We just have more groups involved, more engagements, more activations. So hoping to keep the, the trend to bigger and better. And and a great place to do all that. A website we can go to to find out what's going on. Yes. Uh, so I would advise you, any of your listeners looking for anything to do this weekend or any uh, day of the year is tourismhamilton.com. Uh, on there, you'll see, you know, the best in attractions, events, restaurant guides, you name it. Uh, that's a great one-stop shop of what to do. Uh, over any any long weekend or day of the week. All right, first long weekend, summer of 2023, and the hammer is ready, whether it's Gage Park, Bayfront Park, RBG, what have you. There's lots going on. Check out the website to find out more. Ryan McHugh with us, Manager of Tourism and Events, City of Hamilton. Ryan, have a fabulous weekend. It looks great. You as well. Thank you so much. It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word and join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after uh, the five o'clock news. This was a horrific story of a Hamilton woman who lost her life at the hands of her son. And as reported in the Hamilton Spectator uh, by Susan Claremont, less than five hours before he was charged with killing his mother, Daryl Buckle stood before a judge and explained the reason he spat on police officers with no provocation was because a voice in his head told him if he didn't do it, his mother would be murdered. Uh, red flag. Let's bring in Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney. Jeff, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, all things considered, I've got some some stuff on the go and some challenges, but otherwise, okay. Um, what are your thoughts when you hear this this case? Well, we'll start, of course, Scott, by saying that Mr. Buckle is presumed innocent, so the fact he's charged with murder, let's give him the benefit of that to begin with. Um, but and second, I read the story, and I don't, you know, I don't think it's it's a situation where we can be critical of justice system participants. 
and say, well, this is obvious or that should have been done or otherwise. But once we get through those two things, it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. I mean, if you could imagine the scenario, and I, I've been at this, you know, in the criminal justice system for a long time. So for me to read a story that's upsetting for me, it's a bad one. Think about it for a sec. He walks into a police station and spits on police officers for no provocation. And he's arrested. He's held a couple of days. He's released. He's got mental health issues. He actually is in the hospital, I think, and then out. And then a week later, goes like June 7th, goes back, spits on police again. Now he's held for 20 days. What do you, you know, because I'm sure in terms of bail or no bail, who's around to sign to let him get back out when he did things like this directly? No record, though. So what do you do with him? And then ultimately pleads guilty and says to the judge that he he did it because if he, a voice in his head told him if he didn't, his mother would be murdered. Our justice system doesn't really set up at all well to deal with that scenario, Scott. So what? what it does not. So, uh, and again, as you said, um, um, interesting turn of events that led to this. Um, what needs to be in place? What will help this from happening again? Is it, I know it's never that easy, Jeff, but is there something that could have been done here? Well, no, that's what I said before. It's not as simple as saying, well, let's right. go back and say coulda, woulda, shoulda. Yeah. Okay. And but is there another law? Is there another? Is, let's. Let's identify it in the following way. I'm going to give you the kind of inside take from a justice system participant, okay? When you have somebody who's charged with something that is, is not, with no record, that's not yeah, amongst the yeah. most serious spitting on a police officer, well, you aren't going to hold him without bail. He's yeah. going to be released. So the, so the fact that he said uh, if he didn't do it, he felt his mother would be murdered. Hang on. We aren't there yet. Okay. Right? Remember that right now, I'm walking you through it step by step. okay. So he's arrested for spitting, walking into a police station, spitting on a police officer. We don't have a system in place to make a guy like that submit to a psychiatric exam. We just don't. Okay, there isn't enough there to say, well, this is clearly a matter of mental illness where we're going to require the guy to be essentially hospitalized in detention and be subjected to an assessment. Is he fit to stand trial or not? Okay. Has he guy, is, he, is he not criminally responsible by mental disorder because he spit on a police officer? You aren't going to get that. So does he get out on some form of release, his own signature? And remember, we've talked about the bail process in the past. You aren't going to be able to have no bail for a guy with no record for simply the mere act of spitting on a police officer. He gets out. Now, there's no follow-up. There's nobody that will sort of step in and say, hey, sir, once he walks out of the courthouse, Let's get into why you did this. He hasn't got a lawyer working with him, remember, because ultimately he's represented by duty counsel. Where does he go and what does he do? He's got auditory hallucinations. He's been seeing a doctor for the last few months. He's on some medication, including an antipsychotic. He, a few weeks later, checks himself into the hospital, apparently, Scott, for some period of time because he, quote, wasn't feeling well, unquote. Who makes him stay? Mm-hmm. Well, he is. He's involuntarily. Okay, he would only you know be required to stay. He was considered to be a danger to himself or others, and psychiatrists are often reluctant to require a guy to stay in for that. Mm-hmm. And he's got the auditory hallucinations. Remember, we don't know yet why did he spit. That hasn't come to light. Maybe we don't. That hasn't come to light yet. He gets back out. So he's been in the hospital a few days later. He gets back out. He goes back to the police station. And does the exact same thing. Red flag. Sure, that this guy's behavior is very bizarre. 
Scott, Scott, we got people all, you know, in different areas in the city whose behavior is bizarre. We are not yet into the realm of locking people up for unusual behavior. Because I'm guessing there was no threat. I mean, if he had said, Jeff, uh, I'm going to murder my mother, would that have been a different story? Uh, that, that certainly could have. I don't know that that would get us to the stage where the guy is going to be, you know, denied bail. Okay, could you get to the stage where <clears throat> it could be advanced? A Crown might say, look, this guy should be the subject of a, an assessment. You might need to ha- try and have a psychiatrist see the guy in custody. Okay, and and get, like a, get a court order, have a psychiatrist see the guy, get an assessment done of him then, and see where you are. Why would stage. that have not have happened when you hear of a man who ha- is hearing voices? No, we don't and- know about the hearing voices, Scott. Mm. The hearing voices, remember, the hearing voices doesn't come out till after he's pleading guilty right, and on right, sentence. Right, right, Remember that? We can't work backwards. Nobody knows that story. And the hearing voices in and of itself isn't enough to be able to say, hey, this guy should be detained. It likely right. isn't enough to have an assessment to determine whether he is or isn't criminally responsible. Remember, the conduct is the act of spitting on a police officer. Okay. Uh, I don't know that it's one which would prompt anybody in the justice system to immediately say, let's go into the protocols we would for something much more serious for the the court-ordered psychiatric assessment. That's the thing, by the way. There are remedies available within the code, but you don't normally see it for something as minor as this. And yet, Scott, it's bizarre. Where do you, with someone in your experience, how do you look at this and, 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 and try to come up with a solution. What what is what could be done? What should be done? What if okay. or is this or is this just a situation where you know what this is what happens when things fall be- between the cracks or not even falling between the cracks because as you said the criteria wasn't met to follow this up. It, it's interesting. And, and in other words, until you commit the crime, oh well. Yeah, and I I've just literally there there was a tremendous story just last month in the Atlantic magazine about a fellow whose best friend had been battling mental illness for years, and there were all kinds of issues in, out, otherwise, not getting the help that the guy ultimately needed, and ultimately went up murdering his own girlfriend. And there are, there are places in the United States, there are programs that do exist where there are community supports where individuals can essentially be required to participate in some mental health and re- mental health assessments, assistance, and, and support. And that's the battleground, because civil libertarian people would say, just a minute, you can't restrict the individual's liberty. And others would say, no, but the person can't really look after himself or herself. Mm -hmm. And they need the help, and they're really in a position to be able to say, well, I'm not going to get the help. It's clear. You have, reading this guy's line about, I wasn't feeling well, Scott, you know, in, in a perfect scenario, you'd have more mechanisms in the mental health system and would you have a capacity for a different form of civil commitment Commitment where the guy might not be able to necessarily get out of the hospital when he did? Or alternatively, when the guy leaves, the, when you have a guy who leaves the courthouse having said, look, this is what I was thinking, uh, and I will see my doctor, and the judge says, yes, I know you will, I'm confident you will, there's one where if you had the kind of resources, Scott, somebody's there with him at court and works with him you know, to ensure that the follow-up occurs. Um, we, we don't have those kinds of mental health supports. 
So you have a situation where, yes, we are aware there's a mental health-related issue. The guy says he'll get the help. Duty counsel tells the court he appreciates he does need it. He's been living with the auditory hallucinations. We can't remember work backwards from saying that on the face of this, oh, gee, somebody should have seen he'd kill his mother. Right. Forget, what did he do, Scott? Yeah, no, you're right. Been yeah. on a police officer at Central Station and did it again five, six weeks later and said, well, I, I was hearing the voices saying, if you, I didn't, my mother would be killed. Do you take from that, uh, this guy represents a potential threat to his mother's life, or is it a guy who's experiencing significant auditory hallucinations on a repeated basis, notwithstanding help, that he actually acts on? Right? What do you... What do we need? We certainly need a mental health support system there. And probably more so now post-pandemic. Well, the, yeah, these kinds of cases are certainly problematic. And, you know, whenever you hear the, I mean, Scott, there have been the cases, of course, in Toronto, you know, with the, the guy yeah, from the yeah. TTC. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I read another one just not that long ago, somebody who walks up to people and punches them. Yeah. And has done so for years. And you read about it in B.C., they're having problems. I mean, all over the issue of people who have mental health challenges and or drug abuse, okay, that might well lead to repeated behavior where the criminal justice system punishes the conduct that's right there in the face. Oh, you punch somebody, fine, I'll give you this long a sentence. I can't right. give you more than that. Well, yeah, but that doesn't help turn around the behavior. That doesn't achieve some stability. And we'd say that also doesn't achieve protection of the public. So clearly the system is failing in, in a significant way. And, and this isn't just in the Canadian justice system. Yeah. Scott, as I said, read the story in the States there, too. Mm. And they're starting to make changes, and there are legal challenges to those legislative changes. So that's yep. a dynamic tension, Scott, between a system which says to those who have mental health challenges, you know, we're going to basically require you to get the help. And those who would say, but if yeah. the individual doesn't want it, they shouldn't have to receive it. Mm, good point. Jeff Manishin with us, trying to break it down. Criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney. Jeff, as always, thanks again. Be well. Thanks, Scott. It's a really challenging topic to discuss today. It is. They always are. That's why you help us so much. Take care. Have a good one. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, All Request Friday edition. If uh, Hamilton today, you want to be a part of it, feel free, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. While Ukraine's counteroffensive advances, there's a push from some NATO members to speed up the process and get Ukraine into their ranks. Uh, and Anita Anand has stopped short of call, uh, uh, rather stopped short of joining that call to action. Let's talk to Arl Brown, Professor International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and with us now. Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Good afternoon. So, Arl, we, we, I remember at the beginning of all of this, way back when, that, that even Ukraine wasn't really that interested in joining NATO. It, I remember President Zelensky saying that. What has changed? Why now? It, is Ukraine obviously want to be a part of it? Why is this this push now? Obviously, the aggression in Ukraine and the legal conquest of large chunks of Ukraine are crucial factors, and we see changes. Uh, at the beginning uh, of this conflict, uh, you may recall that Finland and Sweden were neutral countries. And opinion polls prior to the February invasion of last year showed that uh, the majority in both countries were not in favor of uh, joining NATO, and that flipped completely because of Russian uh, 
actions. So I think we have to look at the reality that there has been this brazen violation of international law, international norms, and uh, it is an ongoing uh, aggression that is causing an enormous amount of damage to Ukraine. And naturally, they would like to have protection in, in the future. And they are very eager to have the same kind of protection that Finland now has and that Sweden hopes to have. And the kind of protection that was described by Mr. Biden at the beginning of the conflict or just before the conflict started, where he was very eager to signal to the Russians that he's not going to get involved in a war over Ukraine, uh, but he was going to defend that as uh, President Biden every inch of NATO territory. Well, Ukraine, having undergone uh, all this pain, they would like to have that assurance as well. And uh, many would think that they earned it. Odd that when this all started, Putin uh, was worried that uh, NATO was advancing, and now he's actually driven people right into the arms of NATO. Uh, How difficult is this? How much of a challenge is it to bring uh, a country like Ukraine into NATO? Uh, less than it would have been uh, a year ago, because uh, given uh, the very significant military aid that has been given Ukraine and the transformation of the Ukrainian forces into uh, uh, armed forces that really resemble and are more and more interact with those of NATO, as well as other political reforms that are being undertaken inside Ukraine, I think Ukraine is vastly more prepared to get into NATO than it was uh, uh, even a year, a year and a half ago. And that progress has been very significant. And they really have earned uh, that uh, right, uh, uh, according to the British, for instance. And even though it may not be quite as fast as the accession of uh, Finland, and hopefully the accession of Sweden, which, but for the objection of Turkey and Hungary should have been in already uh but ukraine could be fast-tracked and this is what the issue is the british uh, secretary of defense is in favor and the british government of fast-tracking that is dropping the uh membership action plan which had been applied to so many states previously but not to sweden and not to finland uh because that is a prolonged it's a useful process but it's a prolonged process and Ukraine needs to get that assurance quickly. And also we have to look at the signal that would be sent to Russia. And that is, if Vladimir Putin is convinced, as he appears to be, that time is on Russia's side, uh, speeding up the membership of Ukraine basically would tell the Kremlin, no, time is not on your side. And uh, maybe should cut your losses, uh, give up the territories and come to some kind of negotiations that are meaningful rather than preserve this hope that Vladimir Putin has that somehow the West will fall apart, that he will still prevail in Ukraine, and that it's just a matter of time before he can turn around what has so far for Russia proven to be a strategic disaster. Uh, Why has Canada stopped short of joining that call? It's a very good question, and and, uh, I've been puzzling over this because we have generally been very supportive of ukraine we have been generous with financial aid uh somewhat less so with military aid because we just don't have that much to give we could be a little bit more creative the danes and the dutch are buying tanks for ukraine 
and we could do the same kind of thing on a larger scale because we don't have that much to give. Our own forces are way below what we need for a country this size. But I think there are maybe two factors involved in this. One is that if Ukraine becomes a member of NATO, then the support that we have to give Ukraine as also a member of NATO would be more than just an act of generosity. Mm. It would become a treaty obligation, which right. means that Canada would have to have the capacity to do that. And we are spending about 1.29% of our GDP on defense, which regardless of the kind of accounting acrobatics that some of our officials may engage in is way too little. The size of the Canadian forces is far too small. So we really would need to change that capacity. And there's no indication that the Canadian government is prepared to do that. Mm. And so this could be something uh, that holds us back. The second element is leadership within the alliance. The British have tried to take on a leadership role, and they've been very bold in stating a strategy of winning from the very beginning that was not shared by the Biden administration, which has been remarkably timid and often feckless. Uh, the British, uh, as you will recall, took the lead on providing tanks. They took the lead on providing some long-range missiles, and then others eventually followed. Mm. But the United States is the leader of NATO, and so we are not prepared to take the same bold steps, it seems, as the British, and we follow American leadership, and American leadership is not on board in terms of uh, shortening the process. Harold Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Always fascinating, Arl. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. You can join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. Your chance to see Diana Krall. Uh, in a winery setting. How cool is that? Also, tickets to the Brat Music Festival, that all coming up after the 5 o'clock news. We all heard that story and the horrific event that happened at the University of Waterloo this week in which saw a stabbing take place, uh, a teacher and two students in a philosophy class focused on gender. To get an update and find out where we are, let's bring in Constable Andre Johnston, a public information officer with Waterloo Regional Police Service and with us now. Andre, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, so uh, it, it, this is, uh, first of all, before we get into what happened and, and what we know and such, how are the victims? Do we have any updates there? Uh, we do have uh, some news to share in that regard. Uh, all of the victims have been treated for their physical injuries and have since been uh, released from hospital. Okay, so everyone out of the hospital. Obviously, this could have been a lot more, a lot worse than what it was. Uh, absolutely. It was a, a dynamic situation um, and uh, we were able to respond uh, right away and uh, make an arrest in regards to the incident. So tell us what happened Andre when you got there what was the scene like uh, run us through the timeline. So at approximately 3 35 p.m. we responded to a report of a stabbing inside a classroom at Heggie Hall at the University of Waterloo. Um, very quickly through the investigation we were able to determine um, that the male suspect was still on scene um, and at that point, we were able to make an arrest um, uh, shortly thereafter uh, within the Hagee building itself. So um, during the incident, uh, the uh, accused was posing uh, to be a victim. However, officers were quickly able to identify him and place him under arrest. 
Uh, there must be a tremendous amount of confusion when everybody arrives in a scenario like this. Uh, absolutely, and, and we were quite fortunate in this in the circumstance uh, that we had uh, several people who had called in uh, and provided uh, a very detailed and specific um, a description of the suspect, and that description is what helped us to identify uh, exactly who it was and, and make arrest uh, right away. And we understand that the suspect was sort of trying to blend in with the population at that point. Is that accurate? That's correct. So, uh, you know, initially the accused had posed to be a victim. Um, but again, based on the, the excellent information that we received from uh, several witnesses who observed him and the physical description that was uh, provided, we were able to identify him uh, right away and make an arrest. What can you tell us about uh, the incident itself? I understand that, that as, as this person went towards the professor, that others came to, to the professor's aid. That's right. So several students uh, in, the, in the classroom uh, attempted to stop the attack while others fled the room. Um, and while the students were trying to escape, the, the accused did uh, stab two of the students and attempted to stab a third. Um, but there were students that uh, you know, tried to prevent the attack by uh, throwing items within the classroom. I believe a, a chair was thrown uh, and other items to try and distract and stop uh, the attack from occurring. How long would it have been from when this started to uh, the suspect was apprehended? How, how, how long a period of time? Any idea? So we're still trying to determine exact timelines, as you, as you can appreciate. There's, uh, it's a very dynamic situation. Um, what I can say is that uh, we were uh, on scene within about three minutes of the, uh, the initial uh, phone call, and the suspect was arrested shortly thereafter. So um, in terms of the whole attack, it probably lasted only a couple of minutes, and, hmm. and we were there on scene immediately following. Uh, what can you tell us about the suspect? Uh, so the suspect that we have arrested is Giovanni Villalba Aleman, a uh, 24-year-old, uh, sorry, uh, international student uh, from the University of Waterloo who recently graduated. And so he was a, a graduate. Do we know how long he had lived in Waterloo or how long he went to the school, where he was from? So I don't have specific timelines. I, I can say again uh, that he was an international student and uh, recently graduated from the school. And do we, do we know anything about a history of violence or anything similar to this? Uh, nothing similar to this, no. What happens now, Andre? How do you move forward with this? So the accused has been charged with three counts of aggravated assault, uh, four counts of assault with a weapon, two counts of possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose, and for mischief under $5,000. Uh, he made his initial uh, appearance in court yesterday uh, and has been remanded into custody. So at this point, um, it will be going through the court process uh, in regards to the charges where uh, he will have to answer to those. And uh, we continue to follow up uh, with the victims and offer support uh, and work with our community partners uh, to ensure the safety of uh, students, staff, and faculty and faculty at the University of Waterloo. Obviously, this is a horrific situation, and like you said, very dynamic when, when all of a sudden law enforcement gets called into a, a university setting and such. Is there anything you can learn from this, Andre, or, or, or response, or how this all goes down? Uh, we are always learning in, in our organization uh, you know, to work in improvements, uh, but I will say that uh, it was a tremendous response, uh, not only by police, but by our emergency service uh, personnel 
and partners uh, who responded immediately to the critical incident. So um, that would include uh, Waterloo Region Paramedic Services, the University of Waterloo Special Constable Services, as well as members of our integrated mobile police and crisis team uh, who were on hand uh, immediately to to help out. So um, it, it was a tremendous response. Uh, clearly a, a tragic circumstance and situation, uh, but we were able to make an apprehension uh, very quickly uh, following, following the incident and restore safety to the campus. And my goodness, it could have been so much worse. Uh, Constable Andre Johnson with us, Public Information Officer with Waterloo Regional Police Service, giving us an update on the attack at the University of Waterloo this week. Andre, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. In an attempt to better foster better relationships with Italy, uh, Andrea Horbath, Mayor of Hamilton, and some city community partners heading to Italy uh, July 3rd to 14th. What is the point of international trips like this? Why do international municipal relations matter? Let's bring in former Mayor of Hamilton, Larry Diani. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well, and Scott, that song should be your theme song every single day. <laughs> I love Italy. I've been fortunate enough to go a couple of times, and I absolutely love it. Uh, and would love to go with you just to hang out, and because uh, it's always different when you go there with people that are from there. Now, are you going on this trip? Well, let me tell you that uh, indeed I am, along with uh, I've heard about 200 Hamiltonians who are going to go to Sicily. Uh, to uh, which is not where my family hails from, by the way, but we're going to go to Sicily, uh, where there is a delegation of Hamiltonians all paying their own freight. So let's not have anybody uh, think that the city is footing the bill for all of these folks up to 200. Uh, and to celebrate the uh, the uh, f- feast of Racalmuto, the, the town of Racalmuto, uh, which has given Hamilton many, many immigrants. In fact, um, the uh, theory goes that there are more people from that town here in Hamilton and their descendants, by the way, uh, than there are in the town of Racalmuto. <laughs> and, 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 and just to put this trip in perspective, um, the mayor uh, was invited by the council of the town uh, because last summer uh, they came during Fred Eisenberger's term as mayor, of course, and uh, Mayor Eisenberger had been to Racalmuto before then. Uh, and so they uh, came to Hamilton, a whole delegation of them, to help celebrate what is known in Italy um, as the Return to Your Roots project, which is a um, which is not only a, a project about having expatriates and the diaspora uh, go back to their roots to enjoy the sites and culture, uh, but also economic ties, um, but also it's an economic stimulus for that town. So can you imagine that for the week that uh, these Hamiltonians or or thereabouts are going to mm-hmm. be there, it's going to be a huge economic boost uh, for the community. And as a thank you to Hamilton, uh, the uh, the town of Racalmuto is hosting our mayor. It's going to be a hell of a party, Larry. You guys are going to have a great time. You Let's talk what? about it, it, I'm really looking forward to it. I've never been to Sicily. I know that it's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful island. So my wife and I are looking forward to going. Uh, and obviously, when you do something like this, taxpayers concern, la, 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 la. So break that down. What does this cost? You, as you said, there's a whole pile of people going. They're paying their freight and such. Um, right. And obviously, I'm sure uh, the mayor is being hosted and such. But is there any cost to the taxpayer for this? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that question needs to be asked uh, um, of the mayor. 
and of course uh, any expenses related from her office uh, for her related to this trip will be uh, will have to be published. They always are, so people will know exactly what it costs. But my understanding is uh, that um, that other than the flight uh, in Sicily, at least other than the flight, um, the mayor is being hosted uh, by the uh, uh, by the uh, council, the municipality there. And uh, and so it will not cost uh, very much uh, the taxpayers for having her there and and uh, establishing uh, and reinforcing the uh, uh, the relationship between that town and ours. I, I can tell you though that in terms of positives for for us, uh, and of course I come from the region of Abruzzo, uh, which is in central Italy, mm-hmm. and um, and every year um, there are from Hamilton, close to 80 students that go and study in Abruzzo uh, and um, and um, uh, earn credits. These are high school students. Uh, and um, just uh, as, as a, an exchange, uh, just in April of this year, we had 20 students uh, from the province of Abruzzo come to Hamilton, uh, where they were hosted by the community here. Uh, and also the region of Abruzzo sends choirs and uh, I know that uh, through the consular's office, they sent some artwork as well um, that um, are being exhibited in various uh, art galleries in Toronto uh, and Hamilton, perhaps. So there is a spin-off, both economic as well as cultural, for anybody who goes. And of course, in um, in uh, the, the the trip that's being taken now, at least my understanding is that there are lots of people whose roots are in Sicily. But there are lots of people who are not Italian even, but simply want to go and enjoy the, the sight and culture and cuisine of Sicily. And all regions are so vastly different, aren't they? They are. Italy has what they call regions, which are equivalent to our provinces. There mm-hmm. are 20 of them in Italy. Uh, Sicily is but one, and it has a special relationship because of the history uh, to Italy. It's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like, um, you know, Quebec has special status in Canada. Sicily has special legislative status in, um, in, in Italy, and there are 19 other provinces uh, from the south to the north uh, that are characteristically, in terms of culture, even in terms of language, and certainly in terms of cuisine, are quite different. And of yeah. course, they're all in the beautiful peninsula of Italy, which is, uh, as one of the uh, poets said, sun-drenched uh, almost year-round, although they've been having some issue with, uh, at least in the springtime, with flooding, as people mm-hmm. might know, uh, because of this climate change issue that's affecting the whole world. Uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful peninsula and, uh, and one that uh, has given Canada much, frankly. Very true. Uh, so w- what do municipal- uh, municipalities get from these sort of international uh, relationships, partnerships, what have you? Because many would think this is done on a federal level or maybe a group of business people on a provincial level. What can you do at a municipal level that benefits yeah, both? So, the, of course, the, the levers that, that a municipality has um, are limited. You know, the the uh, levers of uh, the economy are more at the provincial and the, and the federal levels. However, we are partners. I know, I know from having uh, um, actually listened to the uh, Consul General of Toronto that as we speak, there are um, a number of major companies uh, that are looking to locate uh, uh, their uh, activities, their economic activities in Canada, in Ontario. And I know that some have gone 
and spoken as well to uh, to uh, our economic development people and maybe some of our politicians in uh, in Hamilton as well. So there is always that plus. But really, really and truly, the majority of benefit for a trip like this uh, is both cultural in terms of reinforcing roots uh, and uh, and ties that already exist because Hamilton is twinned with uh, quite a few municipalities in Italy, including in the Abruzzi region, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and so that that would be the focus. So we'll see. I, I, you know, I've seen the program that's uh, being laid out in uh, Raccalmuto, Sicily, and and it's it centers around um, the feast, uh, a religious feast, uh, cultural events, uh, and of course food, as well as enjoying some of the some of the sites uh, that uh, there are to offer. All right. Well, enjoy and uh, and, you know, pass along the Hamilton spirit and vice versa. And uh, who knows what sort of deals and relationships can be made uh, back and forth. Larry Danny with his former mayor, city of Hamilton, going over with the delegation to Italy, July 3rd through the 14th. And don't worry, they're all paying their own freight. Larry, thanks for the time. Have fun. Okay, thank you. The first limoncello is on you. Oh, man. I, you know what? I'm just, you're taking me way back. We were lucky, uh, lucky enough to go to Puglia, the southern region, oh, very at the end of the boot this time out, which is completely different from any, every other part of Italy, which, totally as you said. and wonderful. Uh, you know, there's the Amalfi Coast on one side. Yes. In uh, the Gargano on the other, where Puglia is, and yep. the wines are great, and the, and the geography is wonderful as well. Good for you. And, of course, the olives aren't bad either. Uh, Larry Diani, former mayor, city of Hamilton, part of the uh, delegation going over to Italy. Larry, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You remember uh, David Johnston, the special rapporteur, and uh, he, of course, released his final report uh, this week, and it's confidential. And, of course, no public inquiry. Uh, that being said, it seems that uh, the federal liberals liberals are more open to that. And now they are wanting and waiting to un- until they have a full buy-in from other parties before they proceed with the next steps related to uh, addressing foreign interference and a public inquiry. If we had full buy-in, I don't think we would be here. We would be somewhere else uh, with a solution by now. Um, let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. And thanks. Hope you're well, too. Peter, why not just call a public inquiry? Uh, they keep volleying it back to the opposition. Obviously, if everybody was in agreement here, there wouldn't even be this problem. So why the stalling tactics here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, probably a question of damage control, if you like, uh, you know, recognizing that, uh, you know, many names you could put forward to, uh, you know, hold one of these inquiries in the past uh, might well, uh, you know, end up being criticized uh, by the opposition parties, uh, which probably also means that a lot of people you might ask to, to run something like this are going to say they aren't interested, you know, unless they're kind of promised that, uh, you know, the opposition parties are going to accept it. So I think part of it is the idea that who can you put in that place? Uh, you know, we had the uh, proposal of Louise Arbor, for instance, a former Supreme Court uh, justice, uh, you know, but then it turned out that at one point she had some uh, relationship to the Trudeau Foundation uh, many years ago. And so, you know, presumably that could have created a, a whole kerfuffle uh, on the part of, of the opposition party. So I think it, it, part of it is really tied to that question of uh, how do you get someone to lead this inquiry where their credibility to lead it won't be questioned on day one? in a manner that, you know, sends the whole thing off into the ditch, ultimately, you know, no one will follow a uh, public inquiry 
if it's felt that the person leading it is biased or somehow already has their mind made up. Well, again, that's the reason that we call one in the first place is to eliminate all of that. Uh, we're making it sound as if, the first, as if this is the first time we've ever done this. Well, again, we've held these in the past. We've had the same issues. We've overcome them. We've moved on. Um, and I understand the opposition is working as far as coming to some sort of uh, agreement with who they, with whoever they want to, to committee this, whether it's one, two, or three people or so. Uh, at the end of the day, doesn't this protocol all kick in once they call a public inquiry? What is the protocol there? Yeah, well, I mean, a public inquiry is called ultimately by, you know, the, the prime minister, the federal cabinet, uh, you know, makes that call. Uh, under the Public Inquiries Act. So, you know, they have the the ability to put it into place. Uh, you know, and really up to maybe a year ago, I think uh, the idea would have been that there likely wouldn't have been, you know, there would always be situations when we go back and look at, at former public inquiries where opposition parties say, well, maybe that isn't the best person uh, in that role or overall the, you know, the commissioners, you know, usually it's been criticized more in terms of a geographic thing in this country, you know, it's too central Canadian or where's the voice for the West or for this province or that province. So, you know, there, there have been those questions, but not usually ones where the very fundamental impartiality or integrity of people have been questioned in the way that David Johnston was the idea that you could appoint a former governor general, uh, uh, you know, who had in fact been appointed governor general by, uh, you know, a conservative government, you know, it held many uh, senior roles uh, in the university sector and, and to have them really dragged through the mud as being in, incapable of uh, doing their job in an impartial manner, you know, I think would have been unthinkable even two years ago. So there's been a real, uh, really strange change in Canadian political culture in terms of uh, a willingness to, you know, challenge uh, our cozy elites. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing. But I, I think it leaves governments at this moment not knowing, well, how do you go about appointing someone to this position, um, you know, in that changed context? And I think the answer for the Trudeau Liberals is, well, by making sure that the opposition parties actually agree to the person or even put forward names that could be chosen. And, you know, once they put forward names, they're hard pressed to say that person's garbage. It just it just seems really odd to me, Peter, that you're picking names before you're even calling it. That's like finding a bride or a groom before the wedding. Like this, like call the public inquiry, then you pick the staff. What's the problem? Well, I don't know about you. I'd actually like to, you know, choose my uh, partner before the wedding. Yeah. Yes, Scott. But, well, again, uh, but but yeah. but again, but yeah. it, but again, okay. <laughs> Obviously, a bad example, Peter. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's like the the federal government is pushing this back onto the opposition. When at the end of the day, what needs to be called here is a public inquiry, and then we can have the debate about how or who's going to like. None of this is going to change whether you call a public inquiry or not. The same debate over who's going to host it is still going to be there so just call the dang thing and start the process and move on but now they're making it saying well we're not going to call one unless everybody buys in so they're looking for an excuse peter not to call one i'm not sure if they're looking for an excuse not to call one but i think you're right uh you know, and, and really what we should be debating more the terms of reference of of whatever you know inquiry is put out but yeah, I mean, I think you have a government that is really badly scared, right? That yeah. they're at this degree of damage control yeah. over what should be a pretty straightforward decision. Now, I mean, we've seen in other areas, it's a government that also has a tough time making uh, appointments to all kinds of things, including, yeah. you know, yeah. to courts. 
and so there's you know shortage of judges and uh, you know but you know i think this is another example of a, a government that is so concerned about getting everything right and of managing any possible blowback that they you know they overcompensate in the delay now i mean the delay may be strategic as well they may you know have the idea that if you or you dawdle enough about setting this up that any results from it come out after the next election or at least you know at a timing that's more uh, favorable uh, to the liberal government or that if you dawdle long enough you know it will it will blow over a bit but uh, yeah ultimately i think it's it's an indication of a government that lacks confidence in its ability to win public arguments which should be pretty straightforward ones here's here's an inquiry uh, that's going to be important for safeguarding people's confidence in our democracy here's someone who we believe is a uh, a prominent canadian who's above reproach um, I, I'm not sure exactly why they they don't see that they can win those kinds of arguments and need to ensure that the, the opposition parties sign on. So with there, I would agree with you. Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too. Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, artist, author, beautiful scars, and now recipient of the Order of Canada. Joining us is Tom Wilson. Tom, congratulations. This is amazing. Very emotional and unexpected, I have to tell you, Scott. So how did you find out about this? Well, the Governor General called me uh, probably about a month ago and uh, told me that I was awarded the uh, Order of Canada. And uh, all I could think of was all of my relatives, of Bunny and George Wilson, of my ancestors, all the people that would be proud. So... When the day comes that I stand in front of the Governor General and receive this medal, I'm bringing all of them with me. This, I'm feeling goosebumps just hearing you tell that story. It must have been incredible to receive that phone call. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a surprise. I mean, uh, it's funny because uh, a guy, that, uh, a fellow that I knew in high school, like we were friends in high school, we got in all kinds of trouble, made mischief. And now he works uh, for me, uh, with me in my art, uh, with my art. He's an art, my art associate. He just he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna put your name forward for the Order of Canada." And I didn't think anything of it because I thought it's not my time. Hmm. I think I need to be older. I think I need to accomplish a little bit more. But apparently, uh, the Governor General's office and the people who uh, vote for this kind of thing thought that it was my turn. My number came up, so. I'm happy to be in the uh, company of people like Dan Levy and uh, uh, Andy Kim this year, and also uh, with all the other uh, Order of Canada recipients. So what happens now? I get on a plane and I go to British Columbia to do a show. (laughs) 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 Like putting Daniel Lanois, two other great Hamiltonians, Daniel Lanois, who also has uh, uh, been uh, awarded the Order of Canada. So uh, that's what happens right now, Scott. After that, uh, basically, uh, wherever I walk in Hamilton, there's a red carpet that goes down in front of me automatically. <laughs> when, I go to, when I go over to Fortino's uh, on Dundurn to get groceries from my mom, you'll see a red carpet in front of my cart. <laughs> oh, man. And there's somebody there to carry your bag of groceries. That's amazing. So- oh, completely. Yes, I have an entourage now, and uh, there's usually parades wherever I go. <laughs> That's it. You're going to be the grand marshal of everything. So, uh, <laughs> so when is the ceremony? When does this all actually take place? 
Well, I don't know. They've sent me uh, what they, I mean, the big deal apparently is the pin that you wear. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about the pin. And then my brother-in-law, Andrew Burnell, said, he says, well, you get a I said, I don't know anything about the pin. He goes, well, he says, just look at, look at Leonard Cohen or uh, look at uh, uh, Eugene Levy or look at, uh, you know, Bobby Orr, anybody who's got the Order of Canada. Whenever they get their photo taken, you got to wear the pin, Scott. Mm. So it's a small pin, and my wife is already afraid of me losing it. So um, <laughs> I hope that they have an art. So, uh, you know, considering the journey that you've taken and your discovery of late beautiful scars, the whole story, does this have even more of an impact considering your heritage, your history that you've discovered? Well, I mean, it, it's it's a bit of a uh, a bit of a crossroads, I have to say. But I'm taking this this attitude, Scott. That, uh, I I hope that the disappointment uh, will help me to influence the results of my work in the indigenous uh, for indigenous education and support my positive intentions as I help to bring a deeper awareness of the true history of this country. I am uh, a member of the Order of Canada. And I feel that it's my job uh, to uh, correct the history that we've learned about this country and about the indigenous uh, communities across the country. And I expect to do that in a very positive way. Is this better than a number one record? Well, number one record, I, you know, that's okay, too. It doesn't come with a red carpet. <laughs> it doesn't come with the pin. No, it doesn't come with a pin. So uh, this is quite the ceremony. I mean, obviously, you've seen people get this in the past. Uh, This is going to be an incredible experience for you to stand in front of the Governor General, again, considering the history of of yourself and everything you've endured. Um, What are you going to wear? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to wear wear, uh, my hat with my uh, Mohawk beaded band. And, uh, God, I don't know what else. I guess I'll make it up uh, as I go along. Scott, i got to tell you, since I got out of the confines of Sherwood Secondary School on the East Mountain, I've been basically making this up as I go along. Uh, That's pretty well a lifetime of making it up as I go along. I expect to continue to make it up as I go along. It seems to be working for me finally. Does this give you any sort of peace? I mean, you know, your career, you know, you've been constantly moving forward and and discovering and such. What what, what does this mean for you, Tom Wilson? Does this leave you some peace considering your past? Uh, I have to say, Scott, I'm not really thinking that way. it more uh, more than anything, it ignites me. It ignites me to work harder. It ignites me to continue creating. It ignites me to go and uh, uh, defend land with my fellow Mohawks. And uh, and uh, it uh, ignites me that uh, you know if I end up arrested again for that, uh, so be it. You'll be uh, you'll be. You'll be finger fingerprinting a guy with the Order of Canada next time. <laughs> yeah, I think you have diplomatic privileges now, don't you? I, I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm definitely gonna find out. And you know what? If you give me fifty bucks, I'll make sure you get them too. Oh, uh, there you go. All right. So, what do you think this means to the Mohawk community? I'm gonna find out. I'm gonna find out. I know that uh, uh, my friend Jesse Wente, uh, who is uh, an Indigenous activist, uh, writer, 
a bit of a genius. He was uh, he was involved in the Order of Canada voting. Um, I don't know uh, if he was involved in voting for me, but uh, I know that there are many uh, people from Indigenous communities uh, who have been given this honor. Um, I'm proud to stand with them. Well, Tom Wilson, uh, with all of the accomplishments and now Order of Canada, my goodness, I don't think the city could be any more proud of you. Congratulations, and uh, we'll keep in touch and, and follow you on the journey. Thank you, Scott, and uh, and have a great weekend, will you? Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.